Let me tell you a story, podcast number 88. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago, age of never mind it is a how truth long it's You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. Today we are privileged to have a guest reader and poet with us, Suzanne McCone. And before she gets started reading her poems, uh, we'd like to ask a couple questions just to get to know her a little bit better. Uh, My first question is, how did you get into poetry? Well, I've written in one sense or another since I was a child. There's a lot of poets in our family, from my great-grandfather to my mother to my aunts and uncles, and it's just kind of a genetic thing, I think. And when I decided to go to college, I studied creative writing, and that led to some poetry classes. And so everything just kind of came together during the class. So that's very cool. So do you write other things other than poetry? I do. I'm in the middle of a fiction novel right now, and I've written a book called Leaving Egypt, a travel guide that I'm about ready to re-release. It's a devotion book with some poetry and kind of some journaling opportunities. And then I've also contributed to two of the eclectic collage books, as well as helped a friend with one of his books. The fiction fascinates me, of course, because that's my um, main writing right now. Um, Are you basing your fiction on like a town you know or a situation you know? I am. It's based in my hometown of Orfino, Idaho. It's fictionalized characters, of course, but it's hard to say it's 100% fiction because I think everything we write is based on reality. But yes, it's in my hometown based on fictionalized people that may or may not resemble myself or others. (laughs) Yes, that's the way it goes. All of our past kind of feeds into what we write, but... I try to tell people who call and or write and say, oh, you fashioned so-and-so after me, that no, I didn't. Probably every character is kind of a, is the word a collage or a, a melding of lots of people we've known over time. Um, so, Steve. <laughs> I was going to ask if there is some big juicy secret like, the bad guy is was somebody in your life or something like that. But apparently, well, I'll let you answer. <laughs> well, I don't know that the bad guy was someone in my life, but I would say that the main character is a conglomeration of some people that are very close to me. And then we'll read the book to find out how juicy that is. That's right. <laughs> well, thanks for letting us um, know a little bit more about your fiction. So now we'd like to hear some of the poetry you've written. Junked Wurlitzer. Memorabilia gathers round like we did at the beer joint, turning a deaf ear to your legacy. You rest amidst rusted fenders, winged roadsters, a royal crown cola sign, junk once as luminous as you were. You were a wooer of the juvenile, calling us to dance, satisfying your voyeuristic soul, Now you wear a tarp, army green, like the uniforms that march to your tune, victorious in purpose. Remember, you led Rex and Viv in the foxtrot the night he bailed. Mitch and Stella mastered the Charleston to your tricky syncopation. B 
B-3 brought our feet to the floor. T-57 kept them there. D-19 drew our bellies close. J-32 kept them that way. Harbinger of bliss, commissioner of fate, sending the innocent into battle, the old back into adolescence, conniver of reality, contractor of dreams, know your duty is done. Sisters in the kitchen. Sisters scattered around the table, screen door shut on a pale day. Shared times mark familiar faces, sun severs rain falling gray. Crimson cupboards bounce a warm light, hearts sing secrets difficult to say. Trusting in time, truth, and lessons, not a moment matters more than today. Feminine mindset faced over tea, dreams stir hope, memories fade. Tomorrow's past, yesterday's future, around the table they have their say. Shaped in an afternoon, sisters in the kitchen, screen door shut on a pale day. Some things that are nothing. The unmarked grave of a soldier, an upstart AV kid after high school graduation, aged Americans, an unborn fetus, a junkie tricking his last fix, adding machines, typewriters, bastard children, decaf coffee, rotary dial telephones, a warm corpse propped against a corner stoop, Coolies, broken fences, deadbeat dads, impeached presidents, a mom with a license plate number for an address, a man with no job, junk cars, a woman with no uterus. What defines nothing? No name, no use, no value. I was nothing once. Below Grace. Street light shades her hollow face, stuck on the corner of despair and shame. Feet nailed down by cold heart's sin, heart mended poor from the outside in. Tired angel flies below grace, soul worn thin, hope erased. Open up, babe, it's cold inside. Let Jesus warm you in the night. Turn to him, take a chance, he'll capture you in a lifelong dance. You'll never be alone again. But then you've really never been. Father's Dance. My heart beats to the rhythm of the song you're singing to me. Hold me in your arms, set this captive soul free. While I step to your dreams, giving in to your lead, create in me an insatiable need to dance every dance for the rest of my life with your promises reflected in my eyes. A Lasting Song. God tucked in your heart a lasting song with a rhythm that won't fade away to share with your world, to sing to yourself, to light the darkest of days. On the day you were born, he gifted you well, with treasures to last all life long. Only he could see what the days would hold, and how much you needed a song. He knew pain would come, he knew you'd be strong, he knew your heart would sing, no matter the storm, no matter the trial, no matter what life would bring. You've played your song through the toughest of times, sang in the face of distress. You've praised your God when reasons to praise have turned to emptiness. With your feet on the rock, you've stood firm, planted on holy ground. With your eyes on him, he's brought you through, and in his eyes you've found your reason to sing, your reason to live, your reason to breathe again. You've found a love that, like your song, will never find an end. 
thank you, Suzanne, for coming all the way from Lewiston to read for us. Sure appreciate that. And for our listeners, by the way, Suzanne does beautiful glass art. It really looks good. I'm going to read for you from P.G. Woodhouse, The Man with Two Left Feet. That's the book, and the short story is Extricating Young Gussie. She sprang it on me before breakfast. There, in seven words, you have a complete character sketch of my Aunt Agatha. I could go on indefinitely about brutality and lack of consideration. I merely say that she routed me out of bed to listen to her painful story somewhere in the small hours. It can't have been half past eleven when Jeeves, my man, woke me out of the dreamless and broke the news. Mrs. Gregson to see you, sir. I thought she must be walking in her sleep, but I crawled out of bed and got into a dressing gown. I knew Aunt Agatha well enough to know that if she had come to see me, she was going to see me. That's the sort of woman she is. She was sitting bolt upright in a chair, staring into space. When I came in, she looked at me in that darn critical way that always makes me feel as if I had gelatin where my spine ought to be. Aunt Agatha is one of those strong-minded women. I should think Queen Elizabeth must have been something like her. She bosses her husband, Spencer Gregson, a battered little chappie on the stock exchange. She bosses my cousin, Gussie Mannering Phipps. She bosses her sister-in-law, Gussie's mother. And worst of all, she bosses me. She has an eye like a man-eating fish, and she has got moral suasion down to a fine point. I dare say there are fellows in the world, men of blood and iron, don't you know, and all that sort of thing, whom she couldn't intimidate. But if you're a chappie like me, fond of a quiet life, you simply curl into a ball when you see her coming and hope for the best. My experience is that when Aunt Agatha wants you to do a thing, you do it. Or else you find yourself wondering why those fellows in the olden days made such a fuss when they had trouble with the Spanish Inquisition. Hello, Aunt Agatha, I said. Bertie, she said. You look a sight. You look perfectly dissipated. I was feeling like a badly wrapped brown paper parcel. I'm never at my best in the early morning. I said so. Early morning? I had breakfast three hours ago and have been walking in the park ever since, trying to compose my thoughts. If I ever breakfasted at half past eight, I should walk on the embankment trying to end it all in a watery grave. I am extremely worried, Bertie. That is why I have come to you. And then I saw she was going to start something, and I bleated weakly to Jeeves to bring me tea. But she had begun before I could get it. What are your immediate plans, Bertie? Well, I'd rather thought of tottering out for a bite of lunch later on, and then possibly staggering around to the club, and after that, if I felt strong enough, I might trickle off to Walton Heath for a round of golf. I am not interested in your totterings and tricklings. I mean, have you any important engagements in the next week or so? I scented danger. Rather, I said, heaps, millions, booked solid. What are they? I, uh, well, I, I don't quite know. I thought as much. You have no engagements. Very well, then. I want you to start immediately for America. America? 
Do not lose sight of the fact that all this was taking place on an empty stomach shortly after the rising of the lark. Yes, America. I suppose even you have heard of America. But why America? Because that is where your cousin Gussie is. He is in New York, and I can't get at him. What's Gussie been doing? Gussie is making a perfect idiot of himself. To one who knew young Gussie as well as I did, the words opened up a wide field for speculation. In what way? He has lost his head over a creature. On past performances, this rang true. Ever since he arrived at man's estate, Gussie had been losing his head over creatures. He's that sort of chap. But as the creatures never seemed to lose their heads over him, it had never amounted to much. I imagine you know perfectly well why Gussie went to America, Bertie. You know how wickedly extravagant your Uncle Cuthbert was. She alluded to Gussie's governor, the late head of the family, and I am bound to say she spoke the truth. Nobody was fonder of old Uncle Cuthbert than I was, but everybody knows that, where money was concerned, he was the most complete chump in the annals of the nation. He had an expensive thirst. He never backed a horse that didn't get housemaid's knee in the middle of the race. He had a system of beating the bank at Monte Carlo, which used to make the administration hang out the bunting and ring the joy bells when he was sighted in the offing. Take him for all in all, dear old Uncle Cuthbert was as willing a spender as ever called the family lawyer a blood-sucking vampire because he wouldn't let Uncle Cuthbert cut down the timber to raise another thousand. He left your Aunt Julia very little money for a woman in her position. Beechwood requires a great deal of keeping up, and poor dear Spencer, though he does his best to help, has not unlimited resources. It was clearly understood why Gussie went to America. He is not clever, but he is very good-looking, and though he has no title, the Mannering Phillipses are one of the best and oldest families in England. He had some excellent letters of introduction, and when he wrote home to say that he had met the most charming and beautiful girl in the world, I felt quite happy. He continued to rave about her for several mails, and then this morning a letter has come from him in which he says, quite casually as a sort of afterthought, that he knows we are broad-minded enough not to think any of the worse of her because she is on the vaudeville stage. Oh, I say! It was like a thunderbolt. The girl's name, it seems, is Ray Dennison, and according to Gussie, she does something which he describes as a single on the big time. What this degraded performance may be, I have not the least notion. As a further recommendation, he states that, as a further recommendation, he states that she lifted them out of their seats at Mosenstein's last week. Who she may be, and how or why, and who or what Mr. Mosenstein may be, I cannot tell you. By Jove, I said, it's like a sort of thumb-gummy bob, isn't it? A sort of fate, what? I fail to understand you. Well, Aunt Julia, you know, don't you know? Heredity, and so forth. What's bred in the bone will come out in the wash, and all that kind of thing, you know. Don't be absurd, Bertie. That was all very well, but it was a coincidence for all that. Nobody ever mentions it, and the family have been trying to forget it for 25 years. But it's a known fact that my Aunt Julia, Gussie's mother, 
was a vaudeville artist once, and a very good one, too, I'm told. She was playing in pantomime at Drury Lane when Uncle Cuthbert saw her first. It was before my time, of course, and long before I was old enough to take notice the family had made the best of it. And Aunt Agatha had pulled up her socks and put in a lot of educative work, and with a microscope you couldn't tell Aunt Julia from a genuine dyed-in-the-wool aristocrat. Women adapt themselves so quickly. I have a pal who married Daisy Trimble of the gaiety, and when I meet her now I feel like walking out of her presence backwards. But there the thing was, and you couldn't get away from it. Gussie had vaudeville blood in him, and it looked as if he were reverting to type, or whatever they call it. By Jove, I said, for I am interested in this heredity stuff. Perhaps the thing is going to be a regular family tradition, like you read about in books. A sort of curse of the mannering Phillipses, as it were. Perhaps each head of the family is going to marry into vaudeville forever and ever. Unto the, what do you call it, generation, don't you know? Please do not be quite idiotic, Bertie. There is one head of the family who is certainly not going to do it, and that is Gussie, and you are going to America to stop him. Yes, but why me? Why you? You are too vexing, Bertie. Have you no sort of feeling for the family? You are too lazy to try to be a credit to yourself, but at least you can exert yourself to prevent Gussie's disgracing us. You are going to America because you are Gussie's cousin, because you have always been his closest friend, because you are the only one of the family who has absolutely nothing to occupy his time except golf and nightclubs. I play a lot of auction, and as you say, idiotic gambling in low dens. If you require another reason, you are going because I ask you as a personal favor. What she meant was that, if I refused, she would exert the full bent of her natural genius to make life a Hades for me. She held me with her glittering eye. I have never met anyone who can give a better imitation of the ancient mariner. So you will start at once, won't you, Bertie? I didn't hesitate. Rather, I said, of course I will. Jeeves came in with the tea. Jeeves, I said, we start for America on Saturday. Very good, sir, he said. Which suit will you wear? New York is a large city conveniently situated on the edge of America, so that you step off the liner right onto it without an effort. You can't lose your way. You go out of a barn and down some stairs, and there you are, right in among it. The only possible objection any reasonable chappie could find to the place is that they loose you into it from the boat at such an ungodly hour. I left Jeeves to get my baggage safely past an aggregation of suspicious-minded pirates who were digging for buried treasures among my new shirts, and drove to Gussie's hotel where I requested the squad of gentlemanly clerks behind the desk to produce him. That's where I got my first shock. He wasn't there. I pleaded with them to think again, and they thought again, but it was no good. No Augustus Mannering Phipps on the premises. I admit I was hard hit. There I was, alone in a strange city, and no signs of Gussie. What was the next step? I am never one of the masterminds in the early morning. The old bean doesn't somehow seem to get into its stride till pretty late in the p.m.s, and I couldn't think of what to do. 
However, some instinct took me through a door at the back of the lobby, and I found myself in a large room with an enormous picture stretching across the whole of one wall, and under the picture, a counter, and behind the counter, divers' chappies in white, serving drinks. They have barmen, don't you know, in New York, not barmaids. Rum idea. I put myself unreservedly into the hands of one of the white chappies. He was a friendly soul, and I told him the whole state of affairs. I asked him what he thought would meet the case. He said that in a situation of that sort, he usually prescribed a lightning wizard, an invention of his own. He said this was what rabbits trained on when they were matched against grizzly bears, and there was only one instance on record of the bear having lasted three rounds. So I tried a couple, and by Jove, the man was perfectly right. As I drained the second, a great load seemed to fall from my heart, and I went out in quite a braced way to have a look at the city. I was surprised to find the streets quite full. People were bustling along as if it were some reasonable hour and not the gray dawn. In the tram cars, they were absolutely standing on each other's necks, going to business or something, I take it. Wonderful Johnnies. The odd part of it was that, after the first shock of seeing all this frightful energy, the thing didn't seem so strange. I've spoken to fellows since who have been to New York, and they tell me they found it just the same. Apparently there's something in the air, either the ozone or the phosphates or something, which makes you sit up and take notice. A kind of zip, as it were. A sort of bally freedom, if you know what I mean, that gets into your blood and bucks you up. It makes you feel that God's in his heaven, all's right with the world. And you don't care if you've got odd socks on. I can't express it better than by saying that the thought uppermost in my mind, as I walked about the place they call Times Square, was that there were 3,000 miles of deep water between me and my Aunt Agatha. It's a funny thing about looking for things. If you hunt for a needle in a haystack, you don't find it. If you don't give a darn whether you ever see the needle or not, it runs into you the first time you lean against the stack. By the time I had strolled up and down once or twice, seeing the sights and letting the whole chappie's corrective permeate my system, I was feeling that I wouldn't care if Gussie and I never met again, and I'm dashed if it didn't suddenly catch sight of the old lad, as large as life, just turning in at a doorway down the street. I called after him, but he didn't hear me, so I legged it in pursuit and caught him going into an office on the first floor. The name on the door was Abe Reesbitter, vaudeville agent, and from the other side of the door came the sound of many voices. He turned and stared at me. We'll finish reading about Gussie next time. We're now into Chapter 28 of Winds of Wyoming. The blood trail was harder to track once they entered the woods, but it was evident to Mike that something large had been dragged through the pine needles. Clint stopped. If it's a wolf pack, his voice was a whisper. We don't want to tangle with them while they're eating. How could wolves drag a buffalo through the fence? Mike's voice was also hushed. The gate could have been down. 
Maybe. Should I get my rifle? Clint asked. Good idea. I'll wait here. Mike leaned against a tree. He closed his eyes and allowed the heat and the smell of pine sap to slow his racing heart. Still, the tremor in his gut persisted. Would he ever relax again? He plucked a pine needle and stuck it between his teeth. At least his foreman was acting more like his old self again, which was good. Clint returned with his gun. Together they crept along the forest floor, ducking under branches, skirting bushes and rocks, squinting to keep the trail in sight. At the base of a stack of boulders, they spied a dark huddle of crows. Clint whispered, Bet that's it. He ran into the clearing, waving his rifle. Get! Get out of here! The big blackbirds scattered into the treetops, squawking their resentment. Mike knelt beside the riddled carcass. This is the one. What one? Clint lowered the gun and knelt beside Mike. He whistled. Ugh! The slasher strikes again. Hard to be sure, but I think I saw a picture of this calf right after it was killed. Where? Clint eyed Mike. On Kate's computer. Why would Kate? I mean, she treated that calf like a baby. His forehead creased. Do you think she's the killer? That she killed both calves? Kate couldn't have killed either one, Mike said. She was in the hospital when the first one died, and she's still in a wheelchair, as far as I know. He remembered how hard it was to tell her Trudy was dead. Thank God he wouldn't have to tell her about this one. What do we do now? Clint asked. Mike sighed. Call the sheriff's office again. With a few more clues, they might figure out who's destroying the herd and who broke into our office. Could be the person who stole the money killed the calf and uploaded the picture on the computer. They walked out of the trees to the fence and stood in silence, watching the bison. A cow eight or nine yards away eyed them for several minutes, then resumed grazing. Mike stuck his hands in his pockets. I don't know what to do, Clint. I thought of asking our staff to provide round-the-clock security, but that would get pricey fast. Have any ideas? If we don't act soon, we won't have a herd left. How about livestock protection dogs? Clint suggested. I read somewhere that they're fairly effective at discouraging predators. Yeah, I heard that too. Mike lifted his hat to run his fingers through his hair. But they're no match against a degenerate with a rifle. I should sell the whole herd to Marshall Thompson before I no longer have any bison to sell. On the road below them, a rusty Chevy pickup topped a hill, a cloud of dust swirling in its wake. Whose rig is that? Clint asked. Doesn't belong to any of the employees. Looks like the truck the Clifford brothers drive. What are they doing on our property? Maybe they're the bison killers. Clint hesitated, then shook his head. Nah, they're too old. Plus, I don't think either one of them has all his marbles. But just in case, I'll have the guys keep an eye out for them. The vehicle passed from view. Clint turned to Mike. What's the deal with Marshall? He wants to start a herd and asks me to sell him as many animals as I can spare. I'm beginning to think I can spare them all. You can't do that. 
You've got to fight for what's yours. Clint slammed his fist into his palm. If you let these fools win with the buffalo, they could go after your cattle and your horses, possibly the staff or the guests. Your parents worked hard to build the WP and make it the successful, reputable ranch it is today. You can't let some idiot destroy their dream. You're right. A cold chill speared Mike's stomach. I have to fight this. I'll be right beside you all the way, Clint said. Thanks, Mike grinned. I appreciate your support. The cow moved closer, still grazing. Clint kicked at a short, round cactus. Sorry about the way I acted the other day. Like a junior high kid. It was my fault, Mike adjusted his hat. I was evasive and secretive, which is how Kate was. Weird things kept happening, all associated with her. And then the sheriff had her car towed. He trailed off. Maybe he was saying too much. But Clint, who now studied him with raised eyebrows, needed a better answer than he'd given him earlier. Don't tell anyone, Mike said, but the sheriff's department confiscated her car for evidence. Mom and I think it has something to do with the money that was stolen from the office. And then he paused. Hughes was not a reliable source, but the documents appeared authentic. It was brought to our attention that Kate's past may not be all that... He searched for the right word. Pristine. He paused. I admit, I kind of had a thing for her, too. But believe me, we're both better off. A thunderous blast eclipsed his words, thudding against his eardrums. The cow they'd been watching collapsed onto her knees, her wide mouth protest drowned by the reverberation. Kate put her book down. Are you okay, Dimple? All she could see of her elderly friend was a single boot that stuck out from behind the big lilac bush beyond the patio. Some, Dimple made another exasperated sound. Some hooligans been tramping around my yard. Kate's heart jumped. She bookmarked her spot with Mike's receipt, the one he'd given her the night they met, and wheeled across the patio. The sheriff had said Ramsey was still in jail. Who else would walk around Dimple's backyard? Tara? The deputies? She rolled to where Dimple knelt behind a lilac bush, staring at boot prints. Big boot prints. That ruled out Ramsey. And no high heel marks, which eliminated Tara. I cultivated this patch of dirt several days ago, Dimple motioned with her trowel, to plant more daisies. But a prowler visited us in the meantime. One noisy joint at a time she stood, using a shovel for support. See the direction the prints are aimed? Kate looked at the imprints and then at the house. The patio. The bush was about five feet high. A person her size or taller could easily see into the house if the blinds were open. That just fries my gizzard, Dimple snorted. Some depraved person stood right here behind this bush and spied on us through that window. I've got to call the sheriff. It's my fault, Kate's shoulder slumped. Dimple's blue eyes snapped to a steel gray. Why do you think everything is your fault, Kate Nielsen? Kate pushed a wheel back and forth over a pebble. You didn't have to call the sheriff every other day, and neither did the Duncans until I came to Copperville. She was like a trouble light that attracted swarms of bad luck moths. Get over yourself, 
Dimple stepped from the bush, careful to not disturb the footprints. I'm going inside to go call the sheriff. If the department sends out deputies today, they can photograph the prints while they're fresh, as well as look for other clues. Stunned by Dimple's retort, Kate stared at the boot prints. She wasn't happy about another visit from the deputies. But maybe, just maybe, they'd find the missing link to all the insanity. Reading from Roger Pond's book, Take the Kids Fishing, They're Better Than Worms. And this section, this segment is called A Fine Mess. Well, isn't this a fine mess, I mumbled. Just a few more and I'll have enough for breakfast. That may sound strange to some folks, but mushroom hunters will understand. Getting oneself into a fine mess is about the best thing that can happen to a mushroom hunter. I grew up in the Midwest in the days when mushroom hunting was a heady blend of art, science, and religion. There was a certain mythology to mushroom hunting when I was a kid. We always looked around apple trees, for example, and oak groves were good, as were beech, ash, hickory, maple, gum, sycamore, poplars, walnut, hawthorn, hedge apples, etc. We always looked in the mayapple patches. We found the vast majority of our mushrooms in the places we always looked. Dedicated hunters carried a stick and raked the leaves to uncover the secretive morels. Some dragged their feet as they walked, hoping to cover their tracks so no one would find their mushroom patch. That's part of the lore of mushroom hunting. You never know where you'll find them, but you surely aren't going to tell anybody else where you've been looking. I've learned to choose my mushroom hunting companions carefully. I'll never take a person who has never found a mushroom, for example. There's a reason they've never found a mushroom, and there's no point in dragging a jinx through the woods with you. I get a kick out of those old stories about blindfolding your companions before taking them mushroom hunting. That's a bunch of baloney. 90% of them will try to peek under the blindfold as soon as they get in the car. Some of my best mushroom hunts started out as something else. We would be planting corn and parked a fertilizer truck next to a woods, where we might find some mushrooms at the edge of a lane. Those were the days when portable outhouses were unheard of, but every farm had a woodlot. If a guy was working in the field, he always spent part of his day in the woods. It's hard to say how many mushrooms are found by folks who are actually looking for a pawpaw tree, but we found quite a few that way. My favorite mushroom hunt started out as a turkey hunt. I was wandering around waiting for a turkey to gobble when I happened to spot a few morels. The turkeys weren't cooperating anyway, so I put the mushrooms in my hat. A few minutes later, I found some more, and my hat was getting full, so I took off my t-shirt and tied the top shut. By the time my t-shirt was full, the turkey hunt had escalated into a full-blown mushroom hunt. Finally, I didn't have any place to put them. So I took off my long underwear and tied the legs shut. A few hours later, my underwear was fully loaded, and I took that as a sign it was time to quit. Some folks might wince at carrying mushrooms around in their underwear, but that's because they aren't mushroom hunters. 
We can't expect them to understand, now can we? And that story will take us out of the woods for this podcast. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckyliles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckyliles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carrie Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.